As we begin our study in this series this morning, we begin with this question. How is the Lord's house? In the Old Testament, the Lord's house was His temple. It was the place where His name was. It was the place of His worship. It was the place where His glory descended from time to time. That was the Lord's house. And you recall a passage in Haggai, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The prophet Haggai comes to speak to God's people. He says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? The background of the passage is this, that the Israelites, or the Jews, I should say, have returned from Babylonian captivity, that they had begun to restore spiritually uh, the ordinances of the temple, that the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid, and then they had sort of gotten busy with other things. They had gone to restore and build up their own houses and take care of their own situations. And the house of the Lord had been neglected. And this prompted the message of Haggai, go build God's house. Think about the Lord's house. How is the Lord's house? It must be built. In the New Testament, His house, His temple, is His church. In Ephesians 2 and 19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, it is the church which is the house of God, the household of God. And I want to tell you this morning, the house of the Lord, His church, needs to be built. When we talk about building the house of the Lord, it has nothing to do with the grandeur of any one church building. It's not about brick. It's not about mortar. It's not about stained glass. Those aren't the things that speak of the health and the building of the house of the Lord. The stones of the Lord's house are present this morning. It's precious souls. It's Christians. First Peter 2, verse 4, Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Lord's house, His church is built as the individual stones are working to edify, to build up one another. And certainly the Lord's house is built up and expanded as individual Christians are active in the work of evangelism. That is, that the Lord's house is built as the Lord adds more stones to it. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved in Acts 2 and verse 47. Our primary work as Christians is to be evangelistic to spread the gospel, to allow all men the opportunity to obey the truth, to be saved by the Lord and added to His church. The Lord's house needs to be built. It's built one living stone at a time. It's built one precious soul at a time. And each of us has a responsibility to encourage, to edify, to evangelize in our own circle of influence. I say all that to say this, that this series, we're looking at a particular mission field. You know, as you're looking at the interactive outlines, just a word about those, that is a way for us to kind of organize the talk, the studies that we're going through. You'll find that there's blanks there that'll be filled in very specifically, but uh, on the page right now is just a box labeled Facts of Islam, and from time to time you'll see those. Just write down what you think is important. Write down the questions that come to your mind that you'll want to talk to me about uh, after the services. I'd be glad to do it. But uh, here we talk about the specific mission field of Islam. Islam means submission. You've probably heard that it means peace. 
It means submission. A Muslim, then, is one who submits. There are 32 nations around the globe that have a population of 80% or greater that is Muslim. Islam is the second largest world religion. It is the fastest growing world religion. There are about a billion Muslims in the world. That's one out of six people in the world is a Muslim. And in the USA, in our country, there's about five million right now, according to most recent data. Hardly a day goes by without the news reporting on world events that are motivated in some way by how Muslims are interpreting their faith. And we don't have to travel to the other side of the world to come in contact with Muslims. Many of us realize that we have Muslim neighbors in Middle Tennessee. Our responsibility is the same, to preach the gospel to every creature. Our responsibility is the same. We must build the house of the Lord. And our system of study will help us do that. Here's, what we're, here's how we shall proceed in our study, our course of study. Of course, above all, we want to be fair and we want to be accurate. And so I'll be quoting from the Koran substantially, as well as the Bible, to dispel much of the misinformation that floats around about both religions. I've come to the conclusion that the media pretty well paints Islam in an unfavorable bias about as quickly and as willingly as they paint conservative Christianity uh, with a negative bias. What do the texts really say? Well, we'll get to the truth by sticking to primary sources. That's the Bible. That's the Koran. And you and I have the ability to read these books and understand them. According to the Koran in Surah 12, verses 1 through 3, these are the verses of the Immaculate Book. We have sent it down as a clear discourse that you may understand. Through the revelation of the Koran, we narrate the best of histories of which you were unaware before. You know, it's at the bottom of the quote that I have attributed using the word Surah. The word Surah means recitation or revelation. I'm using it fairly synonymously with the idea of chapter. That is, if you bring your own Koran with you this week, you'll be able to turn to this chapter or surah, the number and the verse, and you'll be able to follow along. Surah 12, verses 1 through 3. I should say that each of the surahs in the Koran, and there are 114, have a name, but since we're not familiar with those names, I don't think that'll help you find it any quicker. We're just going with the numbers. Surah 12, verses 1 through 3. You can read it, you can understand it. Of course, the Bible says this in Ephesians 3 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written to you already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 17, Do not be unwise, but understand or know what the will of the Lord is. Both of these books say you can read them, you can understand them, and you need to to be delivered from evil. So we're just going to take them at their word. Open them up, read them, let's see what they say. On the outset, I want you to know that Muslims are not to be feared. Rather, we should try to understand their religion, that we might engage them and lead them to Christ. And there's nothing that dispels fear about anything than gaining more knowledge of it. That's what we're going to do this week. In a fair way, but in a direct way, we're going to open up the cram, we're going to open up the Bible to see what these books say, to see what these religions teach. Are we up to it? Are we prepared? We need this information because our work is to engage Muslims and lead them to the gospel. But you know what? That is our work among any people estranged from Christ. To engage them, 
to teach them, to lead them to the gospel. And that's where we start this study. Are we up to that work? Are we engaged to that work? So we'll be talking about it generally with specific application to Islam. I want to ask you four questions. And the first is this. When we talk about building the Lord's house, and how is the Lord's house, have Christians become quiet? Have we gotten quiet? There are areas of life and morality, there are areas of behavior that the Scriptures speak upon unashamedly, directly. But do we declare it? And see, I'm convinced that many of our neighbors in denominationalism and in Catholicism have become alarmingly silent. And instead of speaking to uh, these issues as the oracles of God, they have bought into the spirit of the age which is relativism, which is postmodernism. It is that attitude and perspective which says there's no absolute right and wrong. Each situation is different, and, and we won't judge. Who am I to judge? They say, you go your way, and I'll go my way. And I'm sure we'll all get to heaven just on our own path. They say, what does it matter? Don't we all love the same God? We're just loving Him in our own way. And this perspective has colored the way that our society views Christianity. This perspective has colored the way that our society views all religion, including Islam. This is why when we see expressions of militants among Muslims, when we see the reports of violence, the Western media consistently marginalizes Islamic militancy with words like the extremists, with words like the fringe faction with words like zealot or fundamentalist. And by saying things like that, it makes it sound like the militant Muslims, they're just out of their minds. Because who would take a holy book and actually believe and obey everything it says? Only radicals, right? I want you to know that in this room, you and I can understand why Muslims act out violently against other Muslims against non-Muslims, even suicidal attacks. These are simply reading their Koran the way that you and I read our Bibles. They come to the Koran and they believe that it is the word of Allah, the word of God. They come to the Koran and they believe it says what it means, it means what it says. They come to the Koran and they are obeying what they believe is the word of Allah. They're being faithful. It's just that the Koran and the Bible teach such different things. They are not quiet. They do not compromise. And part of the appeal of Islam is this uncompromising stance. People are looking for that. People want to know, what do you believe? What do you stand for? I think a great case that uh, makes the point that illustrates this is the case of the conversion of John Walker Lynn to Islam. Do you remember hearing about John Walker Lind back in 2001? This young man is now serving a 20-year prison sentence for being a U.S. citizen who joined the Taliban and fought against U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He was captured in November 2001. And as he spoke to reporters, he was very candid about his situation growing up. Why John Walker Lind grew up in this upper-middle-class family in Marin County, California, it was a community that was noted for its tolerance, noted for its open-mindedness. He came from a household that was very progressive in their ideology religiously. His father was a Catholic. His mother was a Buddhist. And the idea of the family was the children just needed to decide their own beliefs about religion. 
We're not going to teach them. We're not going to try to shade them one way or another. They need to find out their own what they believe. Well, Walker Lynn, at age 16, explored and converted to Islam. Islam appealed to him, he said, because it seemed that America was a land that exalted itself above all else. He looked around and he said, Americans are too busy pursuing their own goals to have time for their families or their communities. He was disgusted with the way that certain celebrities were idolized by his peers and by society when they blatantly used drugs and alcohol and they fornicated. He told the media he was looking for something pure. Well, in 1998, Walker Lynn moved from California to the nation of Yemen. And there he furthered his studies in the Koran. And he wanted to see what a nation would be like that really took the Koran and, and believed it and lived by it. But, at least to his understanding and reading of the Koran, Yemen wasn't quite close enough. And so he moved from there to Afghanistan under the regime of the Taliban. There he believed they literally followed the Koran. Now, I tell you, as I reflect on this young man, I wonder if his life may not have been an entirely different soul, uh, situation. Maybe he wouldn't be in prison today if somewhere early on he had been given a clear presentation of New Testament Christianity. If someone had sat him down and told him, look, the Bible teaches there is absolute morality. The Bible teaches there is right and wrong. The Bible teaches that we should pursue purity. Maybe if he could have compared a fundamental interpretation of the Bible to a fundamental interpretation of the Koran, he might have become a Christian. He might have been persuaded by the message of the Bible that values life as opposed to a message of the Koran which takes life as something that is quite cheap, quite easily taken by the hand of another. Who knows? But I'll tell you what we can learn by looking at the case of John Walker Lynn. And that is that a morally permissive society and a watered-down Christianity discourage people who are seeking pure truth and push them into the arms of another religion that boldly articulates itself and takes a stand. The Koran declares that Islam is worth dying for, even killing for if taken literally. Do we declare that Christianity is greater than self and selfishness? Do we declare that Christianity is worth dying for? Or that it is... Or that have we become quiet? You see, the terrible error of the social gospel movement is that it reduces the local church to a family-friendly entertainment complex, complete with concerts, food, interpretive dance, and sports. It turns the local church into an amusement park. And I want to know who would die for Disneyland. I wouldn't. Are we quiet when we should be boldly speaking up for the truth of the gospel and Christianity? Are we building the Lord's house? My second question is this. Have Christians become unidentifiable? If we're going to be talking about the teachings of the Koran, the teachings of the Bible, we need to state plainly that we cannot address every nuance of every group that claims to follow these books. You look at Christendom, and if you're a, a Muslim looking in at Christendom, boy, it is just a, a web of confusion. If you're a Muslim looking in at Christians, I mean, what have you got? Well, here's all the Christians, right? Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, Pope Benedict and Benny Hinn, Jerry Falwell, the mighty name Andrew Roberts. The Muslims looking in, these are all Christians, right? All are Christian and Muslim life. Do you all believe? Do you all practice a lie? 
Absolutely. I'll just go ahead and tell you. No, we don't. <laughs> Absolutely not. You don't need to understand that it's the same way in Islam. There's some prominent Muslims. Cat Stevens, Mena Yusuf Ali, Queen Rania al-Abdullah of Jordan, Salman Rushdie, Ayatollah Khomeini, Malcolm X, Osama bin Laden. All are Muslims, right? Do all believe and practice alike the Koran? No, they don't. No, they don't. There are people that read the Koran quite fundamentally, quite literally. It says what it means. It means what it says. There are people that read the Koran kind of like Episcopals read the Bible. Okay? So we don't need to attribute, needlessly attribute, uh, beliefs and convictions to our Muslim friends and neighbors. Have to talk to them. Have to find out what they believe. And likewise, we need to be aware that when Muslims are talking to us and we say, well, I'm a Christian, they might be, they might be attributing some beliefs and practices to us that we don't hold. So we have to be identifiable. We have to be clear about who we are. Let us be identified with Christ and not the Catholic Church. There are very specific doctrines in the Koran that really attack uh, Catholicism, attack Gnostic versions of Christianity. For instance, Surah 5, verse 116, And when God will ask, O Jesus, Son of Mary, did you say that mankind worship me and my mother as two deities apart from God? Jesus will answer, Hallelujah! Can I say what I knew I had no right to say? Had I said it, you would surely have known, for you know what is in my heart, though I know not what you have. Jesus, did you tell people that Mary was another God? Where did they get the idea that Christians think Mary is a God? In Surah 9, verse 31, they consider their rabbis and monks and the Christ, Son of Mary, to be gods apart from God, even though they had enjoined to worship only one God. For there is no God but He, too holy is He for what they ascribe to Him. Or they get the idea that monks and rabbis are being worshipped. We're talking about the veneration of Mary. We're talking about the veneration of the saints. And I'll tell you what, Jesus Christ is, is, is Lord. Jesus is God. He needs to be worshipped. I don't believe Mary is part of the Trinity. I don't believe in the veneration of anyone or anything else besides God. We need to speak clearly to what the Bible teaches on such issues. We need to stand for the New Testament. And so when they say, what about the Crusades? We say, look, that goes against the teachings of the New Testament for Christianity to act out militantly and to conquer land. That is apostasy. That was sinful. That was wrong. I'm not a Catholic. I don't believe in the veneration of Mary. I don't believe in the veneration of the saints. I'm not a Catholic. I am a Christian. We need to be identified with Christ and not the confusion of denominationalism. How do all the denominations impact the Muslims' view of the Bible? I'll tell you what it says. It says that clearly the Bible is full of confusion and contradiction and untrustworthy. Because look at all the contrary doctrine. Look at all the contrary practices of these churches. And yet they all say they follow the same book. And they are taught in the Koran that the Bible is untrustworthy. They are taught that the Bible has been corrupted. And I'm afraid that the existence of denominationalism only affirms it. The Koran teaches that Allah gave us the Bible. Surah 3, verse 3. He, Allah, He, has barely revealed to you this book in truth and confirmation of the books revealed before. As indeed He had revealed the Torah and the Gospel. Allah gave the Old Testament. Allah gave the New Testament. Allah gave the Koran. Well, why did Allah need to give a Koran? Because Satan had tampered with 
the Bible. Surah 22, verse 52. We have sent no messenger or apostle before you whose reputation Satan had not tampered with or did not tamper. Yet God abrogates. That means cast off, cast into oblivion. Abrogates what Satan interpolates. Then he confirms his revelations. For God is all-knowing and all-wise. This is in order to make the interpolations of Satan a test for those whose hearts are diseased and hardened. Surely the sinners have gone far into sin. Well, Satan got to Allah's Word and corrupted it, creating Christianity and, and Judaism and these things as we know them. And the Quran teaches that Satan used Christians and Jews to do it, to wreck Allah's Word. Surah 3, verse 78, Among them is a section which distorts in reading the Scripture in a way that though it sounds like the Scripture, in fact it is not. Yet they say it is from God when they know it is not. And they lie about God and knowingly. And he's talking about the people of the book. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about Jews who have corrupted Allah's word. Now, obviously, to the Muslim, the Bible is full of all kinds of confusion and falsehood. And look how all these Christians believe and practice different things. My friends, we need to be identifiable. Speak clearly what the Bible teaches about Christ's church, about the Lord's house. That Jesus is the only head of the church. The only head of the church. It's not a man in Rome. It's not these boards around the country. Jesus is head. That the New Testament is the only doctrine. It's not a prayer book. It's not a creed that can be updated and revised at yearly councils. It is Scripture itself. This is what we stand upon. This is what we affirm. And that there is only one body. There is only one church. And this stands in distinction to the over 200 denominational bodies that you can learn about and visit. Denominationalism is an error, and we ought not to be identified with it. And just here, I want to make a special warning for those brethren in the Church of Christ. My brethren, we need to remember we are not a denomination. We're not a denomination. That's not what the Church of Christ is. We don't take our place along the side of umpteen other legitimate churches that people can choose from week to week. When someone asks you what you are religiously, you need to say, I'm a Christian. Don't say, I'm Church of Christ. When you tell people, I'm Church of Christ, that denominationalizes, that, that, that puts a tag on it. What are you? I'm a Baptist. What are you? I'm a Lutheran. What are you? I'm Church of Christ. Don't do that. Tell them I'm a Christian. Tell them the truth. I'm a member of a church of Christ. That's all you can say biblically. I say this sometimes, and brethren take that hard, and they say, look, if I tell someone I'm a Christian, as opposed to I'm a church of Christ, they're not going to know what I mean. They're not going to know what I believe. Well, then let me tell you something. They don't know what a Christian is. And you'd be better off to take a moment and explain to them what a Christian is, apart from denominationalism, than to just say, I'm Church of Christ, and let this false notion perpetuate. I'll tell you, there's a great opportunity when someone says, well, what do you mean by that, that you're a Christian? Don't pass that opportunity up. Don't pass it up. Be identified. We better not be unidentified. Content with Muslims or others to lump us into denominations, to lump us into quote-unquote Christendom. Just need to identify with Jesus Christ. Just the people trying to follow His Word and be that church revealed of in the New Testament. That's who we are. Number three, how is the Lord's house? 
have we become indifferent? Sometimes we think, well, maybe we're not as active in evangelism or some of this other work as we should be because our fire's gone out. Our zeal for the Lord has gotten cold, especially in the United States. Maybe we've just gotten cold. I'd like to share with you some information about Islam in the United States. Just, uh, just share it with you. Approximately 5 million Muslims in the U.S. I already talked about that. An average of one new mosque opens each week in the United States. There are 165 Islamic schools. There are 426 Islamic associations. There are 90 major Islamic publications. All that's going on in the United States. There are more Muslims than Methodists in the United States today. And likely there will be more Muslims than Jews and Protestants combined by the middle of this century if current trends continue. And that's according to a U.S. News and World Report, uh, Secrets of Islam in August 2005. Well, that's something, isn't it? Here's a religion that's taking off. What effect would it have on you if I could report all of those things about, about the spread of the gospel? What excites you to hear that there's so many people obeying the gospel, we're having to build a new church building every week just so they can assemble. Well, that excites you. What excites you to hear about magazines that people are subscribing to and they're just disseminating gospel information? Would that excite you? Would you get on fire and you say, this is a God thing and we're winning and, 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 and let's go to it? Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that get you fired up? I think it would. I'm not telling you these facts to discourage you. I'm telling you these facts to inspire you. To inspire you and me. If we feel apathetic, if we feel lethargic, if we feel indifferent about, about the cause of Christ, I want you to know this morning that there's a mission field of one billion souls growing daily that have not heard the truth. That there's five million of them around us in this country. You do not have to go to the other side of the world to talk to the Muslims about Christianity. But before the century is over, you may need to walk across the street and tell them the gospel. It's time to be zealous. Our apathy, our indifference, our procrastination, it cannot stand. We are members of the Lord's church with our talents and our resources for such a time as this. And the need for zealous evangelism is desperate. And it's not just in the mission field in faraway lands. It's right here in this nation. It's right here at this moment. Have we become indifferent? We need to build the Lord's house. And finally this morning, have Christians become tired? Are we tired? Are we weary? Have some of our membership gotten older and prefer to rest? When is the Christian's rest? In heaven. That's where we'll rest. In heaven. And we've mentioned this several times in this lesson. Christian's job is what? Our work is what? Why we need to evangelize. We need to spread the word. But did you know this? Did you know that Muslims are also commanded to evangelize? They are. The word they use for it is dawah. We'll talk about this now. Surah 2, verse 143. We have made you a temperate people. Uh, this is all out to the Muslims. We have made you a temperate people that you may act as witness over man and the prophet as witness over you. 
And this is one of the texts that enjoins Muslims to be evangelistic, to spread their word. Strictly speaking, dawah, dawah means invitation, or it means calling. However, as Jane I. Smith, professor of Islamic studies at Hartford Seminary, wrote, dawah is a much nuanced Arabic word, and there's at least three definitions for the word. These are going to sound somewhat familiar to us. Dawah means this. Dawah means the active business of propagating Islam to make conversions. What's that mean? Get out there and actively preach Islam? Tell people they need to become Muslims? Dawah involves the effort to bring those who've fallen away from Islam back. What's that mean? So Muslims have fallen away? Restore them to Islam? Does that sound familiar? Dawah means the responsibility to simply live quiet lives of Muslim piety and charity to set a proper example. Show the world what it means to be a Muslim. Does this sound familiar? Sure it does. This is exactly what we need to do, right, when we talk about evangelism. Preaching the word of the lost. Bring back those who've fallen back to the world. Set the right example. Let your light shine. These things. When we think of Muslim propagation in a single word, likely we don't think of this word dawah. It's probably the first time many of us have heard the word. What word do we think of? Jihad. Edwin's with me. Yeah, jihad. That's the word we think of. Isn't that the only way that Islam spreads their message is by the sword? Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about those things. But I'll tell you what, in our Western society, Muslims are going to grow and win a lot more converts this way, by dawah, than they are blowing everything up. And so we need to look specifically at these strategies uh, for sharing Islam with our friends and neighbors. Muslims target the academic world. I'm taking these next three points from a book by uh, William Wagner entitled How Islam Plans to Change the World. He did quite a study on dawah and active strategies right now. And he said that Muslims target the academic world with Islam. In recent years, great efforts have been made to expose Western youth to Islamic doctrine, to Islamic ideas. At the elementary level, at the secondary level, even at the college level. Usually under a heading of multicultural studies, or in the case of universities, Department of Islamic Studies. Wealthy Islamic nations, and Saudi Arabia is at the foremost of these, have endowed financially struggling institutions so that they might erect Islamic study centers or build a house, an institute of religion on their campus. And Muslim professors are then trained and then sent to teach at these universities around the world. And so they spread Islam on campuses. And the American disposition toward pluralism allows Islam to be promoted in Western schools well, Christianity is barred. Isn't that frustrating? For some reason, a freedom of speech, intellectual freedom, freedom of religion, that's extended to Islam and public education. Christianity isn't. Not as much. Here's what Wagner wrote. Islam has taken advantage of American openness and has made great progress in the law in our schools that are closed to Christianity. The educational institutions of the West will be a major battleground for Islam in the future. I want you to think about the words of Acts 26 and verse 25. As Paul is making his defense, he says that Christianity, his message, is one of truth and reason. It's truth and reason. This is what Christianity is, a religion of truth and reason. It's never had to fear academic critique. 
We better not write off the power of evangelism through college campuses because there's an extra wall for us to scale. We need to go scale that wall. There are other groups that really go out of their way to have some type of voice. Uh, Not necessarily a Bible voice, but a voice on college campuses. And I think about how many communities have a college view Church of Christ. And they always name it that because they're a block off of a college campus. At least the towns I've been in. Don't give up on spreading the word to young Christians, to, to minds that are ready to be molded in college campuses, to those that are willing to question and test everything. We need to do all we can to have Christianity there in the forefront and not secede the battleground in the academic world. Muslims target prisons. Prisons. Wagner wrote this, it is estimated that more than 300,000 prisoners are converts to Islam. And that the rate of conversion may be more than 30,000 each year. There are now Muslim chaplains who minister to Islamic communities and correctional facilities. And Wagner talks about some of the appeal of Islam in the correctional facilities. There's immediate changes in their life that are affected by conversion. They get to take a new Muslim name if they want a new name. They adhere to the Muslim hygiene and diet. They're going to eat differently because now they're Muslims. And there's acceptance into the prison's influential Islamic population. So there's a lot of new beginnings there for a prisoner in Islam. In Hebrews 13 and verse 3, we're told not to forget those who are in prisons. I understand that what that text is talking about primarily is brothers who are suffering persecution. Don't forget about them and leave them there in prison. But listen, listen, here in the prisons is a battlefield for souls. The Muslims are, are really taking the word there and finding growth. And I've talked to ministers in different places who are uh, a little discouraged about prison work because they say, well, you know, we teach them the word in there, they get baptized, we don't retain them too well when they leave. That's between them and God. Am I wrong? Our work is to plant the seed. And if you have many, that many thousands of people there who can see in a very real way, I've sinned and I need something new, Christianity needs to be there. We don't need to be outworked. And then Muslims target minorities. Minority groups. People groups sensing alienation, perhaps, from the culture around them. Wagner wrote that Islam is focusing on people groups in America and in the West, and is creating strategies to meet the needs of these target peoples. As of now, the numbers are not large, but as Christians have learned, people who feel displaced or alienated are more open to conversion than those who have deep roots. The minorities in America fit into this category. And he goes on to talk about the efforts that Muslims make, focusing on blacks and focusing on Latinos, And the population of Latinos is now exceeding blacks in the U.S. What they're doing to try and reach Native Americans. And and basically the strategy strategy is to teach Islam's uh, message of charity and social equitability. And to kind of say, hey, you're not getting a fair shake from the world around you. And Christianity won't give you a fair shake. But look at how, you know, Islam empowers everyone. And that's kind of the gist of that. But I think about Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. There's a passage of Scripture that tells us that Christ is all in all. And there's neither Jew nor Gentile, or slave or free, 
or barbarian or Scythian. And what's the point? That in Christ, it's colorblind. And there's not the place for the, the prejudice and bigotry. Not in Christ's body. We have not to write off evangelizing people in our community who don't look quite like us or don't speak just like us. In James 2, the Christians there are criticized for looking at a brother who's well-dressed and wealthy and affluent and asking him to come and sit up front and, and despising the poor brother in the back. And he says, it's wrong. He says, well, I ought not to be that way. That is not the way of Christ. And this certainly applies to economic issues. We cannot limit ourselves to teaching Christ to other working class or middle class people. We cannot show that kind of preferential treatment. The destitute need the good word. The destitute must be reached. The person doesn't look just like me. People doesn't dress just like me. They don't live on the same side of the tracks that I do. You know what that person has that I have? A soul. And they have one Jesus Christ who died for them. Then maybe they don't know about that yet. And it's our job to tell them. I know I have just a couple of minutes and so some concluding thoughts are in order. How is the Lord's house? Are we ready to build? It is our work. Especially when we think about this mission field or this one. Or have we become quiet? Have we become unidentifiable? Have we become indifferent? Have we become tired? Have Christians quit building the Lord's house? I want to tell you where we need to be this morning. Loud and clear not quiet. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. We need to be bold. We need to preach the Word, whether it's in season or out of season, loud and clear. We are to be distinct and consistent, not unidentifiable. Who's to be the light of the world? It's you and me. Who's to be the salt of the earth? Oh, again, that's you and me. Our light is to shine amidst this dark and perverse generation. We need to be bold and zealous, not indifferent. Not lukewarm like the Laodiceans, who fancy themselves of being so rich and so well off. I'm in need of nothing. They were wretched. They were ignorant. They were blind. Why? Because spiritually they had drifted. Because spiritually they were lukewarm. And we need to be revived. We need to be active, not tired, bold, steadfast, immovable, not cowering, not fearful, not backing down. My friends, it's time for us to spread the light in this world to all we may come in contact with. There's a field white for harvest when we look at this field of Islam. But how is the Lord's house? I'll leave it with you, living stones. We need to build the Lord's house. And amen.